Uh, Mark, thanks for having me this morning. Um, I trust you guys have been enjoying the series going through Colossians, which we are doing as a whole church. It really is an amazing book. And uh, the, the sort of central theme of the book of Colossians is, it's actually a very simple letter. Uh, Paul does not want to write a great tractate on, on uh, theology as he did to the Roman church, even though he hadn't met the Romans yet either. <clears throat> but to the Colossians, he, he just seemed to want to make one very simple point to them. It is one of the simplest letters in the New Testament, and yet, because Paul wrote it and the Holy Spirit inspiring him, it is, it is immeasurably uh, profound in what it has to say. The message is very simple. It's this, you are complete in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Colossians. And so, be who you are. That's his message. <clears throat> know who you are in Christ, and be who you are. So, last week you would have, uh, I think you had Mark preaching to you on the, the, the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ, <clears throat> upon which this great gospel is based, and we, we're going to pick it up in chapter 2 together this morning. Um, in order to do that, I want to remind you of some of the themes of chapter 1. It is such a compact letter, and just remember that when Paul wrote the letter, there were no chapters and verses. It's a, it's a single sort of unfolding train of thought. And so it is important we just turn back to chapter 1 briefly and, and get some of the context so that today's comments will make sense again with that fresh in your mind. So uh, just I want to pick up on a couple of little phrases Paul is writing to the Colossians. He says to them, to the faithful, this is verse 2 of chapter 1, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, in Colossae. Uh, so he starts off with this description of these church members. They are in Christ. That's where they are. That's who they are. That's their status. And this is now um, bringing out a, a doctrine in, in, in the Christian religion uh, called Union with Christ. It's one of the most remarkable teachings of Scripture that if you have received Christ as your Savior, if you've been born again, the Holy Spirit has come inside you, made you alive, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you have been united with Jesus Christ in some real way. It's a mystery to us exactly how this union works, but you are united with Jesus Christ. The, the most common little phrase that Paul uses to describe that is these two words, in him. You are in him. What exactly does that mean? It means that you're with him is another phrase, and we actually see that in Colossians. You're, you're with him. In, in some way, you are made one with Jesus, and you are where he is, and his status is your status. Um, I think it's in, in the letter to the Ephesians that, that uh, Paul says, we are seated in heavenly places. How can it be that here you are, you only have one physical body, and your physical body quite clearly is on the earth right now. How can it be that you are seated in heavenly places? And that's not just a metaphor. There is a, a, a metaphysical reality to that. Somehow, in the mysteries of God, you have been united to Jesus Christ. And you are where he is, and he is in heaven, in his physical body. And so you, in some way, are there with him. Jesus says, um, in, in one of the Gospels, he's, 
uh, I think it's in his discourse with, with Nicodemus, he says, No one has gone to heaven except the Son of Man who's come down from heaven, uh, the, the one who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. How can it be that Jesus is on the earth in his human body speaking to these people and yet he says, I am in heaven. And I think part of the solution to this incredibly profound mystery is it is the ubiquitous, that's a good word, ubiquity, <laughs> means, means everywhere. If someone is ubiquitous, like when you were at home, your mother seemed to be ubiquitous. You couldn't get away from, if you said something you shouldn't say or you hid something under somewhere that you shouldn't hide, your mom seemed to know about it. She was ubiquitous. Not really, but the Holy Spirit is ubiquitous. <laughs> And I think that somehow solves the mystery of this thing, that it is the Holy Spirit that unites the body of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that unites the body to the head. It's the Holy Spirit that unites you as an individual believer with Jesus, because it is the Spirit of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is both here, living inside of you, and at the same time with Jesus in heaven. And, and that creates a reality to your union with Him. Presence of the Holy Spirit. Now these are thoughts which are going to become very important in chapter 2 of Colossians. That's why we need to just bear them in mind. This whole thing of being in Christ. Being united to Him. Um, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. Uh, Paul is, is then saying that they have this hope and faith and love. Which they heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. So Paul has said in chapter 1, fundamental Christian truth or teaching is this, that truth, particularly the truth of the gospel, changes people. Truth changes people. Paul says the word of the truth of the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world as it is amongst you in Colossae. The gospel bears fruit. Truth changes people. Oh yes, it does. That's going to become important. Because truth changes people, Paul then in his prayer for the Colossians, which you know is from verses 9 to 12, he says, for this reason... Uh, I don't stop praying for you. What does he pray? He prays that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is not specifically the knowledge for your particular life. Should I study this? Should I study that? Should I take this course? Should I take that course? That's not to diminish the importance of all the, the multitude of decisions we have to take in life. And our decisions do direct the course of our lives. But that's not primarily what he's talking about here. He's talking about the grand will of God in the gospel. What God has done in Christ. The will of God to save a people and give them to his son as a bride. He, Paul wants the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of that will. And how it works and the complexity and beauty of the message of the gospel. And he says... That must be with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're going to get in chapter 2. By, there were these teachers saying that were, in order to have knowledge, in order to have spiritual understanding, you needed extra help. 
from demonic forces or principalities or angels or powers, some kind of other spiritual source of truth in order to get additional truth that you don't get through the gospel. And that's why Paul actually says, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is no truth that you need as far as eternal truth of what God has done and how to be reconciled with God and how to live with God and how to be clean in His sight and how to increase in in becoming like Christ. There's no knowledge that you need for life that you will not find in Jesus Christ, which is communicated to us in the Bible. And he says he prays this for this knowledge, this, this head knowledge. We, we, in, in some church circles, we have a tendency to downplay the importance of head knowledge. As if head knowledge is a bad thing. Well, head knowledge is only a bad thing if it doesn't connect with your heart. <clears throat> then it becomes dead letters <clears throat> instead of alive by the Spirit. But let's not forget this. God uses knowledge. He uses teaching. He uses wisdom and understanding. He uses doctrine to change us. Of course, it requires the ministry of the Spirit. So there's this highway between your head and your heart. And that's what happens when you get born again. That's what happens when you get born again. Your heart is made alive. And suddenly, the knowledge that you have, it, 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 it continually bursts to life because your heart delights in it. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? I was speaking to someone this morning who grew up in a Christian home, but her heart did not delight in the truth of the Word. It was only when she was born again that suddenly the truth she knew delighted her. Knowledge is good, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. So believers must and can seek fuller knowledge of the truth. It's part of what the Lord invites you to and part of what he commands you to as his child is to increase in the knowledge of his will, of what he's done. That's why you need to read your Bible. That's why you you want to come to church. But the, the, the thing with it is, as you sit there and you know this, is that your heart actually delights to do so. It's not a burdensome command. Verses 13 and 14, Paul picks up the, the two themes which we'll see. He says, He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption in His blood, through, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Two themes, very quickly. Number one, darkness. Um, demonic forces. Um, Satan and his legions and the power of darkness and the kingdom of, of, of Satan which we were in he says all the kind of demonic realm that is the one theme of the freedom of the Christian that we receive freedom from all that and the second thing is guilt guilt for sin we have the forgiveness of sins in Jesus we're going to pick those two up in chapter 2 lastly verse 28 um, well, let's just look at verses 26 and 27. He says, he says, this mystery, the mystery of the gospel, of what God has done in Jesus, it was hidden from ages and from generations, but now it has been revealed to the saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, 
the knowledge was a mystery of what God was going to do in Jesus. In the Old Testament, there were types, there were shadows of it. There were whisperings of it. The, the prophets saw glimpses of it and they would prophesy, but they longed to understand the things that they themselves were prophesying. But in the coming of Christ, what was a mystery to both men and to angels. The Bible says that the angels love looking in on the gospel. Because for, for, for ages, since all creation, it was a mystery even to them. And to those rebellious spiritual forces, all the demons and Satan and all his legion. They thought that they had won. They thought that they had brought man, uh, which was God's crowning piece of creation, the one who was made in his own image. They thought that when Adam sinned, they brought a great and eternal fall. Because they know God is holy. He will not just forgive sin. They thought they had won. But it was a mystery. When Christ went and when he hung on that cross, the, the devil and the demons were rejoicing. Little did they know. It was there they were defeated. It's a mystery hidden. But now it's been made known to us. So the gospel is no longer a mystery. You can know it. The thing that the prophets long to know, you can know. The thing that angels and demons... Did not know. You can know. Because it's revealed now in the gospel. This is an incredible thing, the gospel. And listen to me. If you will give your life to deepening your knowledge of the gospel. Which means that's who Jesus is. That's what, that's what Mark preached on. What, he, what he's done for us. Delivered us from darkness and from guilt. And how did he do it? What was the mechanism of this great forgiveness? The shame of a cross. You give your life to deepening your knowledge of what all that means for you. I promise you this. You will be fruitful with your life. I promise you that. You don't need any other revelation of, of this group or that group or this special teaching or this uh, angelic visit. Or, you don't need that stuff. Now, if you get an angelic visit that's from God, that's wonderful. No problem with that. Okay? <laughs> Just to make that clear. But, but where we're going to in chapter 2 is you, you don't need some special other mystery. It's been given to you. And if you would spend your life deepening yourself in your understanding of the wonders of the gospel, it will change you. It'll free you. You want to be free. If you're a believer in this, in this room, and if maybe you're yet to come to Christ, but you're feeling the drawings and the convictions of the Holy Spirit, there is something in your heart that longs to be free of sin. You, your sin frustrates you as much as my sin frustrates me. The good news is we can be free. You never be entirely free in this world, but we can be increasingly made free as we deepen in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel. Mm. Okay. Thank you. If knowledge of this mystery is the way grace comes to us. So in other words, it comes through your mind. It comes through understanding the gospel. If that's how God brings his grace to human beings. Then what should we do? What should our response to that be? And Paul says, verse 28 of chapter 1, he says, Him... Christ, we preach 
warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom so that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ. There it is again. It is knowledge through both warning and teaching that matures believers. There it is again. And this is what Paul says he gives his life for. He gave his entire life to do these two things. Warning and teaching so that people could be mature. Okay, now with that in mind, here we go. I am aware I took 20 minutes for the introduction. I, that, uh, I am aware of that, okay? And I've built it into the planet. <clears throat> sort of. Okay, so chapter 2. He warns and he teaches. Verses 1 to 3. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for those, uh, as many of, as I've not seen in the, in the flesh, that... They, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance. Now, now, watch how he addresses the mind again here. That they attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So he, he's, he's desperate. He wants the Colossians to come to a full assurance of understanding this gospel. And here's the point he's going to get to. You are complete in him. Now be who you are. We're going to see that. <clears throat> Why does it work? Why does knowledge change us? I can't give you a complete answer to that question. I think there's many in the contemporary church that, that want pure, that want change, what we call sanctification. That's the word for Christian growing in maturity. That they want sanctification through some kind of experience with the Holy Spirit. Like a, like a bolt out of the blue, boom, and it just leaves you changed forever. I'm not saying can't, God can't do that. There may be experiences that you have with the Holy Spirit that are a defining moment for your life. I've got no problem with that. But God is not going to mature you independent of your intellect, of your mind. He wants you to increase in knowledge and understanding. Um, why does it work? Well, he says it's encouragement, number one, um, coming to the full assurance of salvation. When you understand the scandalously good goodness of the good news... It begins to encourage you. You cannot help be encouraged if you understand the scandalous goodness of the good news. It's encouraging. Secondly, uh, and, when, and when people don't have courage, they, they live sloppy lives, right? Without vision, people cast off restraint, says the Old Testament. Where you don't have vision, you don't understand, you don't, you don't have any discipline in life. But where you understand and you have a vision, it's easier to then bind yourself up and do what is right. So, so this is one of the reasons why teaching, knowledge, understanding the gospel changes people. Because it encourages us. It gives us strength again. Secondly, it brings unity. He says, I want you to be knit together in love. You, you, if you want to be... A local church community here who are knit together in love for one another, which is what Jesus wants for you here. He wants you to love one another. 
that is not going to be simply through a, a, a good intent or through um, a sense of uh, just sort of uh, in, informationless compassion. It's, it's not going to be through a sense of brotherly love, of, of, of just sort of like this nebulous good feeling, goodwill towards one another. That's not what creates unity. Profoundly, the thing that drives Christian unity is agreement in the truth. The more you agree on the gospel, on your understanding of who you are in Christ and who the person next to you is in Christ, the more you will live in unity with each other. That's genuine unity. I tell you this, the older you get in life, the more you realize how difficult it is to have genuine unity with people you don't agree with. This is not sentimentality. Paul is being very real here. God wants you to agree on the deep mystery of the gospel and understand it together as a community because that will bring unity. Beach volleyball does not bring unity. Now, I'm not saying beach volleyball is bad, but I'm just saying don't confuse the results of unity with the cause of unity. Truth. Verses 4 and 5. He says, Now this I, I, I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Though I'm absent in the flesh, um, I'm with you in spirit, and I, I want to see the good order and steadfastness of, of your faith in Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you. So he begins now to do the what that he says he's giving his life to do. And that is to, what are the two things? Warn and teach. So he begins to do the what now. The first thing, because he's going to get into teaching now in chapter 2 as well. But the first thing he does is he warns. What's he warning them of? What is going to endanger their unity and their understanding of the gospel? <clears throat> and it's false teaching. So what is this warning? Verses 6 and 7. Um, and you therefore... Uh, have received Christ as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. I want to pull four things out of those two verses. Number one, so he's, he's warning Christians. Here's his warning. I want you to live the Christian life, he says to the Colossians, upon the same principle upon which... You entered it. As you were taught, as you received Christ, so walk in Him. Live the Christian life on the same principles in which you entered the Christian life. What are those? Number one, grace. You enter the Christian life through God's unmerited favor. When you come to Christ, you realize when you're there in all your sin... And you see him crucified on a cross for you, risen from the dead, reaching his arms out to you, saying, come, come to me, I'll forgive you of everything you've ever done. When you first came to Christ, if you can remember that moment, some of you can't, that's okay, if you grew up in a Christian home, you will remember feeling, how on earth can it be that he will take me? Grace, a love that you don't deserve. Now, what Paul says is, if that's how you enter the Christian life, why on earth 
once you're in the Christian life, should you now need to go and do all sorts of things? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, get knowledge from angels. You don't need to do those things to come into the Christian life. The thing that, that drives the whole Christian life is grace. It's grace. You can't earn it. Listen to me. As if Christ is speaking to you this morning. He loves you. And when he returns, you will appear with him in glory. Nothing can stop it. He's chosen you for himself. He's clothed you in his righteousness and you're clean. It's finished. It's finished. It does not matter what you do from now on. You are clean. It is scandalously good news. Secondly, that's grace. Secondly, faith. When you come into the Christian life, you have to believe that God is who he claims to be. That's who you come to. You come to Jesus Christ based on the truth of preaching. And you have a conviction, okay, that's true. It's true that I'm a sinner. It's true I need to be forgiven. It's true that, that Jesus came to the earth. He was God. He died on a cross to take the penalty of my sin. He was, was crushed and whipped and beaten where I should have been. And he's risen from the dead and I can be forgiven now. I, I believe that. You come into the Christian life through faith. Now, why would you want to walk the Christian life in any other way? You continue to believe that God is good. God is wise and that God's word is true. That his word is true, that he can be trusted. When he says to you, maintain your sexual purity. He's not trying to ruin your fun. Part of the, the Christian life is not to obey rules in order to earn righteousness. You're clean already. What he's saying to you is, trust me. I, what I'm telling you to do is for your good. It's, it's, it's for your growth. I have a good plan for you. Keep your eyes on me and you'll prosper. The, the Christian life is a life of faith. It's faith in God's goodness, his wisdom, and the truth of his word. Thirdly, humility. He's Lord. When you come to, to Christ, you come to him as Lord. You come to him willing to submit your own will to him. And that's the Christian life. Everything you do must be submitted to God in prayer, in, in all things, his pleasure must be consulted. So are you good at praying when you face decisions? Are you good at praying before you do something that you really want to do? Are you good at stopping? And saying, you, you are my Lord. I'm humble enough to admit that I don't always have the right answers. I can be deceived by the constant pull of my sinful flesh, which still lingers with us even though we are clean. There's this body that still hangs on to us, although that's not your status before God, you're clean in his sight. But there's this temptation that keeps pulling at you. Do you stop and say, Lord, is it okay for me to do this? I want, I want to encourage you to do that. Submit to him as Lord. And then fourthly, gratitude. He says we must abound in thanksgiving in our Christian lives. Songs can help us do that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says in chapter 316, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I'll tell you what, the, the, the worship team this morning were ministering to me the truth of the gospel. They were teaching me. They were nourishing and admonishing me in their songs. 
Thank you to the worship team. I was overcome by the grace of God in the gospel again this morning. How good he is to have done that to his son for me. Gratitude. Okay, then as we read through chapter 2, he, he then he warns them about these false teachers that are troubling the church in Colossae. He warns them about the teachings about angels and needing spiritual experiences in addition to Christ. And he warns them about depending on the old Jewish religious ordinances, Sabbath keeping, festivals, circumcision. We don't know what this heresy was in Colossae. It was some kind of mixture of pagan religion, these sort of spiritual angelic things, together with Jewish elements to this heresy. It was probably a sort of splintered Jewish group that had joined the church, they were members of this church, and from within they were now telling people, you must be circumcised, you must keep Sabbath days, you must do this, 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 and also we've got, we get special knowledge from these spiritual beings, maybe they were having seances, or we don't know what it was. It's this weird concoction of a heresy, and as you read through chapter 2, you're going to see him now attack those two heresies. Okay, let's then finish in verses 9 and 10. He says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. And in the following verses, he talks about the forgiveness through the nailing to the cross of that handwriting of requirements that was Against us. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it there. I think I've said enough this morning of what I wanted to say. You are complete in Christ. When you read through the Colossian letter, you will see if you read through it in one sitting, which I want to encourage you to over the next two weeks, I'll get to that in a second. You're gonna see this theme coming through in chapter two. Though there is this this heresy that's threatening the church, Paul says, No, you are complete in him. You don't need anything else. You are perfectly mature and complete. Your status before God is that in Him. He's going to work with you as a father, as fathers do. He's going to discipline you when you sin, and you're not going to feel very comfortable, but you are clean. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Okay. I want to, um, want to challenge you. Maybe there's three groups of you I want to challenge this morning. There may be people here who have never given their lives to Christ. You may be sitting here and you've never actually come to Jesus and said, Yes, I need you. I need to be forgiven of my sins. Maybe as you sit there, you still feel like you are in your sins. And you don't want to be there. Mark read us earlier that you are a child of wrath if you are still in your sins. The wrath of a holy God is upon you. But it doesn't have to be that way. Come to Jesus and his righteousness gets given to you as a gift. And all your sin gets taken off him and is put on Christ. And he took the punishment for you. So I want to invite those of you who are not yet believers. And you know in your heart whether that's, I don't care if you grew up in a church or not. I'm talking about a heart relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's not you, I want you to come to Jesus this morning. Don't delay. Today is the day.
You're not here by accident. You come to Jesus today. Secondly, if you have not been baptized, you'll see in in verses 9 to 11, I think it is, he's talking about baptism. Baptism is a picture of what happens to us in Christ. Our old sinful flesh is buried in the waters of baptism and we are raised in newness of life. Our hearts have been entirely changed and we now desire that which is good. Now the first thing your Lord says to you when you get saved is, I want you to be baptized in water. I want you to to submit yourself to that ordinance because it's a public display of what you believe I've done for you. I died for you, I rose again, and you died with me, and you've risen again in newness of life, with a new power over sin that you didn't have before. Okay, so if you've not been baptized here this morning, I am wanting you to present yourself as an act of obedience to your Lord Jesus Christ that you are going to be baptized. Okay. Perhaps I'm I'm, going to leave the third, okay? Just read Colossians every day for the next two weeks while you're doing this. That was my third one, okay? It's only, it takes takes literally 15 minutes to read, okay? But I've got exams. Look, just take 15 minutes. One of your breaks, read Colossians. You read it every day for the next two weeks while you're in this... In the series, I promise you the preaching itself will come alive for you. Because you're going to start to see the train of thought of Paul. It's a beautiful letter. I challenge you to do that. God will honor you. I'm not making a bargain now for example. <laughs> okay, if, 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 uh, if either of those first two is you, I want you to be brave. I want you to stand up and come down here and we're going to pray with you. You want to come to Christ for the first time? Maybe you want to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe you've been backsliding. You come as a public display of your thanksgiving to Jesus. You get out your chair right now as I'm speaking. You stand up and you come down here. And if you want to present yourself for baptism, you come as well. If you've not been baptized and you want to be obedient to this thing, you come down. Great. Well done. Excellent. Don't be shy. Come on down. It's a special moment, huh? It's a special moment in the Lord. Okay. So whether it's baptism, whether it's a recommitment or a commitment to Christ, let's, let's pray. And I'm going to ask Mark if you can make sure no one slips through here. And I don't know when your next baptism is planned for, but it would be good if we could get a baptism going. Yeah. Yeah. Lord, I want to pray for these five ladies that have come down. I want to thank you, Lord, that your word has, has moved them to want to be obedient. I want to thank you, Lord, that their hearts have been lifted up again this morning, that it's finished, that they are complete in you. Everything they've ever done, everything they ever will do is already forgiven. It was nailed to the cross. It's amazing news, Lord. It's amazing news. And I want to pray you bless these ladies, Lord. I want to pray, God, that as they submit themselves to baptism, that your spirit would come upon them, Lord. Even as as the spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, fill these girls with your spirit, Lord, and empower them for a life full of thanksgiving and joy. And Lord, I pray for the church that as this series continues and as they continue to be led 
and sit under Mark's preaching that this church would be a church that increases in the knowledge of the mystery of the gospel. Yes, Lord God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Just don't disappear without giving Mark your name. Okay. <laughs> thanks, Steve. Uh, you guys are so quick. Um, thank you very much, Steve.